Do you suffer with chronic pain? Are you taking risky, over-the-counter, or prescription anti-inflammatory drugs? This is Dr. Ronald Hoppe with a better natural solution from Future Farm Botanicals. Liquid Turmeric Liposome Complex. Future Farm's liquid turmeric with liposomes and nanotechnology delivers maximum absorption for effective pain relief. Sourced and manufactured in the United States, this product contains 1,600 milligrams of curcumin and powerful antioxidant properties. This plant-based curcumin is used to possibly reduce inflammation, block proteins that trigger swelling, and intercept inflammatory pathways, significantly decreasing inflammatory responses. For more information and to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's future P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Don't live with pain when there's an all-natural, science-based remedy that works. myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking about a great new book. It's Doing Harm, and it's about the gulf that still exists in medical treatment for men versus women and how women get the short end of the stick, so to speak, sometimes when their complaints are dismissed, uh, when uh, medical science uh, is not making sufficient advances to address their health concerns. Uh, that's what this book is all about. There are many instances of this. Uh, Maya, um, w- what is happening, however, and this, this began to happen when I was in medical school. Uh, when I was in medical school, uh, there was a revolution in the enrollment uh, in terms of the six, the sex differences. Uh, our class uh, set a record. We had fully one-third of our class uh, in medical school at Albert Einstein College of Medicine that were women. That was considered very progressive in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think the ratio is it's more than 50%. I think more, these days in many schools, it, it's more than 50% of the enrollees are women. Um, that's likely to make some differences, but I'm concerned that you know if you just put a woman in the place of a man, say in the field of OBGYN or in pediatrics, yeah, we're going to bring a woman's sensibilities and a woman's uh, intuition to play. Uh, but if we're still part of a paternalistic medical system, uh, those women may act like the worst male drill sergeants you know, when it comes <laughs> to treating their patients. I, I really do have a concern about that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think I definitely agree with you. Um, I do think that there there is evidence that women as researchers tend to do more research on women's health issues or gender disparities. Um, there's definitely a lot of research that shows that women in general tend to be more patient-centered doctors. Um, more more they, empathetic, you know, I think that's something yeah. to that. It really is, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's, yeah, definitely reasons to, you know, beyond just, uh, belief in, in, in fairness and gender equality to, to be heartened by the fact that more women are, are going into the medical profession. But I do agree that, that we should definitely not assume that that will be enough to really fix these very, very long standing and at this point very entrenched problems, um, that really I think are about, so much about systemic bias in medical knowledge itself. So a female physician is going through the same medical training as a male one and learning the same 
medical knowledge base that has been skewed towards just knowing more about the male body and, and, and conditions that affect men. Um, and I think it's also so much about these really unconscious implicit biases that really do affect all of us, male or female, um, in the profession or not. And so I think it will definitely take more of a kind of proactive concerted effort to, to really fix these problems and, and, um, you know, recognize exactly how they're operating on a systemic level and, and, and really just are not about individuals, you know, being consciously sexist in the least. And, and, and I think, you know, that in one way that makes it harder to fix, but I think it also is an opening to, to kind of urge the profession to, to realize, you know, this is not about blaming individuals. This is about kind of looking at where these gaps are, um, where there are these clear disparities and, and how to shift, uh, how we work to, to remedy them. Indeed. So uh, you have a section in the book, uh, entitled the diseases formerly known as hysteria. It makes me think of, uh, the artist formerly known as Prince. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, but, it, and maybe consciously you, you formulated the sentence that way, but there's a whole raft of diseases that once came under the rubric of, uh, you know, just sort of the, uh, fevered imaginings of the female brain, uh, which now have come into their own as medical diagnoses. Can you talk about some of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in, in some ways, so many, <laughs> conditions that disproportionately affect women could, could fall in that category, you know, from, from, you know, multiple sclerosis was differentiated from hysteria way back when, um, and various autoimmune diseases would have fallen into that category probably before they were recognized. But in the book, I especially talk about what, what are sometimes called contested illnesses like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, multiple chemical sensitivity, chronic Lyme, um, and all of these have often have sometimes been called fashionable illnesses, which I think is an, another very gendered uh, term for it's, them. It's very patronizing, you know. It, yeah, it's it's dismissive. Yes, very dismissive, and and I think you know implicitly or and often explicitly part of the argument that skeptics of these conditions have made is that you know, well, they disproportionately affect women, therefore it's unlikely that they're, you know, real. They're, they're likely just that just the age old kind of hysterical tendencies of women. That's kind of circular um, reasoning, right? It, it is. It's maddeningly circular reasoning. Um, and it really has ca kept these conditions in this catch 22 where, uh, because of that assumption that they're psychosomatic until proven otherwise, the medical community has not invested in the research that would prove otherwise, that would show what the underlying biology is. Um, and so I think that, you know, helps explain why something like fibromyalgia, which affects millions of mostly female patients and, and has causes great disability and suffering, gets just astoundingly little research funding. And of course, among oh. many is belittled as a, as a, as a made up, you know, uh, fabricated disease. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a, that's a dynamic that I think you can kind of point to throughout medical history that has really kind of held, held back the progress that we could have been making if we had really been taking women's complaints seriously and just assuming that their, that their own testimony about what they were feeling in their body was, was a evidence of a real disease, you know, all of these conditions, I think we would know much more about. 
And what many of them have in common is that there's an autoimmune component. And in the book, you state that the estimate is that 50 million women suffer from autoimmune disease. The population of uh, the United States is, you know, adult population, you know, probably under 300 million. So we're talking about uh, one third of the female population of adult women suffer from some form of autoimmunity. What's up with that? Why is there such an epidemic? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the the question that really got me started down this path because I I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, five years ago, and um, as I became more interested in autoimmune diseases, it it seemed striking to me that so many people were affected, and yet you know you don't hear you don't hear a lot about autoimmune diseases um, in the public and. And so many patients report having these really long diagnostic delays um, and during that time really feeling like they're dismissed as, as chronic complainers. Um, so the book started in yeah, part. I'll, just, I'll give you an instance. Is my, my mother came down with uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, and she was diagnosed as simply having a bad menopause. They just said, mm. well, you know, you're, you've got empty nest syndrome and, you know, you, you, you just, you know, you, you, your hormones are, are off. They didn't want to give her hormones, of course, because that was considered dangerous. But, you know, it was just attributed to, well, that's just sort of a middle-aged women have lots of aches and pains. And, you know, that's sort of the way it is. And then her joints started to swell and become mm-hmm. deformed. And, okay, well, now she uh, graduated to a full-blown diagnosis. But it took a while. It took, you know. As you say, there was a, a diagnostic delay of 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was very lucky in that I was diagnosed quickly. But according to a study in the last few years, it takes an average of four years and patients see four doctors during that time. Um, and I think it's a great illustration of how I think this this problem is somewhat self-perpetuating because one of the things that I really learned from talking to experts in diagnostic error is that one of the key problems is that doctors are not often getting feedback on their errors. Uh, Since we don't have really good systematic feedback mechanisms, they really kind of assume that they got it right unless they hear otherwise. Um, So to take the example of an autoimmune patient, if she goes to four doctors or three doctors and then is diagnosed finally by a fourth doctor, those first three doctors who maybe determined that she was just stressed or going through menopause, they often don't get the memo about that diagnosis. Um, And that sort of leaves them with this impression that their offices are filled with lots of young and middle-aged women complaining of fatigue and other subjective symptoms. Um, And as long as they kind of don't realize what the ultimate diagnosis was, that kind of perpetuates the stereotype that women are prone to symptoms that are all in their head. And I think that there's a psychological mechanism on the part of doctors uh, that if they don't have tools at their disposal to treat a condition, you know, say uh, a patient has uh, fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, um, that uh, because there's not a prescription that they can push across the table, that they may assign it into the men- the mental category uh, by default. And it's, it's really hard for doctors to say, look, I know you have this condition. Uh, we don't really know what to do for it. I'm really sorry, mm-hmm. but I believe you. It's mm-hmm. easier to say, 
you know, I don't know what you have. All your tests are negative. Uh, come back when you actually have a positive blood test for rheumatoid arthritis or for lupus or for something tangible. Then we can put you on immunosuppressive therapy because that's the way the algorithm works is, you know, test result, write a prescription. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and it, it's so unfortunate because I, I think from the pr- patient perspective, it feels like it's seems so little <laughs> to just uh, offer that kind of validation and, and that kind of honesty about, yeah, I don't know what's going on with you, but I believe that something's going on and, and either I don't know personally what the diagnosis is or maybe you know, medical knowledge itself, we don't yet understand what's going on with you. Um, but that kind of validation can just go so far. Um, and yet, it's true that so many, so many doctors seem to not be able to offer that. And also, I think we should acknowledge that there are so many disincentives to kind of doing that, you know, it's, there are, there are time constraints, there, there's a kind of financial, um, incentive to to really kind of get patients that you can't really help out of your office mm-hmm. and on to somebody yep. else. And, yep. Yeah. And, and, and I will say that, you know, from my perspective, I, I'm a practitioner of uh, complementary medicine. And uh, I, I think that this is actually one of the reasons why our offices are so populated with women. Overwhelmingly, mm-hmm. uh, the majority of our patients are women. And not to the exclusion of men, because men have problems too that aren't addressed by conventional medicine. But so many women have conditions like uh, Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, uh, uh, POTS, postural orthostatic hyper- hypotension, chronic migraines, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, uh, and on and on it goes. Chronic Lyme disease, you actually cite as a condition that many women suffer from. And yet that's a condition that's it's actually debated whether it even exists, you know, that once you get your antibiotics and you're not feeling well, well, I don't know, maybe you're just down in the dumps. What else is going on in your life? Talk to a Mm -hmm. therapist, get some uh, Lexapro. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's totally true. I'm actually been working on a article that, that talks more specifically about that, how, how so many women, I think, turn to alternative practices because they're being failed so much by what mainstream medicine is offering them. Um, and I, as, as a journalist, it kind of drives me crazy how, how alternative and complementary health is really kind of discussed and dismissed and, and in, I think very sexist ways, um, without that acknowledgement that, that, I think a lot of patients are turning to alternatives just because they don't have, <laughs> they're not because they're necessarily alternatives, but because that they really just are left without any options um, for mainstream medicine. Uh, and I, I certainly feel really lucky that I was, um, I started doing nutritional approaches to my RA very quickly. And I think that they were really helpful. Um, and I, I do definitely agree that, that, that is, one of the reasons you, you you find so many women turning to those kind of things. Well, there is a bit of a, a misogynistic flavor to some of the attacks on uh, alternative medicine, you know, disparaging, uh, you know, certain practices as woo-woo and, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, 
you know, all that stuff is that it's not rational. It doesn't have the hard edge of exactly. uh, data driven, uh, uh, scientifically validated, uh, empiric fact. And, and yet, you know, that it is a paternalistic medical system. It's a medical system that's based on, um, quote, hard science. And yet, you know, harken back to the, uh, the role of, uh, uh, healers. In, in the Middle Ages, in the Middle Ages, if you uh, got sick, uh, you had the option of going to a physician who would likely kill you, or you know, a <laughs> male doctor, who would bleed you or put cups on you or maybe give you a cathartic or something. And, you know, you would die miserably, uh, of, you know, of the, of the therapy, of the treatment. Or you could go to, and this is a, these were women who were sometimes hunted down as witches because they were mm -hmm. practicing sorcery. They were using, they were going to the woods and gathering herbs and poultices. And they actually, for many centuries, were the repositories of true healing because they got it about the subtle processes of the body uh, that didn't respond to these heroic measures that were, you know, so, so male. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think learning that history, um, which I, I think I sort of vaguely knew, but certainly not in as much depth and, and really realizing that that sort of male takeover of the profession um, uh, in the U.S. at least really happen happened so much earlier than those practices had any basis in science, you know, healing became this uh, for-profit male-dominated profession long before it had any relationship to, to science. And in the meantime, yes, all of these mostly female healers who really had centuries of wisdom um, based on observation and actually working with patients, all of them were really aggressively kind of pushed out of the profession um, in order for that takeover to happen. Let's also look at the, the area of uh, women's sexuality. Uh, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, male enhancement, erectile dysfunction, now, uh, you know, a, a bona fide medical condition, um, it, the men are winning the arms race <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> uh, enhancement of uh, sexual performance. Women are, are lagging woefully behind. Uh, is that a result of uh, some inherent bias or is it just simply tinkering with the female uh, libido is, is a little dicier than just uh, using Viagra to to uh, promote circulation to a certain part of your body? Well, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting um, question there. I think I actually I wrote an article a few years ago when the so-called female Viagra pill was approved by the FDA. By the way, a real, uh, a real flop. I forget what it was called, but it's just it, yeah. It, it, side effects include fainting. That's really romantic, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, the female Viagra was a misnomer, of course, because it's it, not at all like Viagra. And in fact, is a drug you have to take every day and had many side effects and was uh, rejected twice by the FDA before it was finally approved. But it was an interesting sort of episode where the the drug sponsor was able to get some feminist organizations yeah, right. on board by, by making that argument that, you know, 
women were were losing the the race here and that there it was kind of a issue of gender equality to to give them something um and then you had you know i think uh other feminist groups who i think were in the right on this one saying well okay but this particular drug i think mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't great yeah, um, it, it seems like a win but like uh, be careful what you wish for because yeah, <laughs> yeah right and also i think raised some interesting questions about you know how to what extent can you kind of treat low libido with with a drug um without kind of considering the the social context right. and, and the way that some at least to some extent women's sexual difficulties may be more related to um relationship problems or cultural stress issues or, yeah, yeah cultural mm-hmm. things that aren't going to be solved by big pharma but <laughs> Yeah, it was an interesting, interesting episode that I think revealed a lot of the the tensions there and and the ways that um, medicine wasn't taking women, certainly not taking women's uh, sexual problems seriously, but also maybe not taking their side effects to a pretty bad drug seriously either. Another big problem is the the frequency of of C-sections. There's some real... uh, uh, there's some real uh, over exuberance when it comes to those kind of procedures with women. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're trying to, to curtail that, but it, it seems like such an inculcated practice. We're really not doing that well in the field of, uh, of, uh, women's birthing practices here in this country. Yeah. I mean, and this is something that I, I didn't get too much into in the book, but I'm, I've been following a lot of the, recent coverage that maternal mortality rate in the U.S. has been getting lately um, that I think has been really, really wonderful and really key in in kind of pointing out, first of all, the huge racial disparities that exist uh, where in this country, black women are four times more likely than white women to die in childbirth. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of this coverage has really highlighted the fact that a lot of these deaths are preventable um, and are due to not only things like unnecessary interventions like C-sections, but also just, again, what we've been talking about, just not listening to women and and dismissing them. Um, And, you know, you hearing horrible stories of women who uh, knew that something was wrong and in, in, childbirth or in the postpartum period and, and were kind of just dismissed. And I think the experience of Serena Williams was really illustrative recently where she, she had a complication afterwards. And, you know, even she is this world-class athlete, yeah, famous yeah. woman was, was initially told by the nurse, Oh, you know, it's fine. It's not a merit uh, system. It wasn't as if she was a drug addicted uh, inner city uh, person, bad diet. And so none of that. Nope. And yeah, and she really had to fight to get them to take take her seriously. Hmm. So uh, bottom line, what can be done? What are some additional uh, resources for people? Uh, and if you're a woman, I mean, how can you uh, become more conscious so you can avoid some of the pitfalls inherent in our medical system? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a challenging question for me because I think that it to some extent, I feel like the burden should not be on individuals um, to kind of try to fix these problems or to 
compensate for the failures of the system. Um, but I do hope that just by being kind of armed with some of the history and the context um, that's included in the book, that that will empower women to uh, feel comfortable pushing back if they're mm-hmm. if they're dismissed and, and seeking out a second opinion or a third or a fourth or a fifth. Um, because one of the things I was actually very, very surprised by to some extent was that so many women even if they're very educated and and kind of have a lot of authority in the rest of their lives really spoke to this, this reality that when you are hearing from a medical expert, you know, who has a degree in a white coat and they're saying nothing's wrong. uh, It's just stress or, or something. It is very, very difficult to kind of trust yourself instead of in them and, and push back. And so I hope that just by realizing that, it's not just you, you know, that this is, these experiences are reflective of these larger systemic problems in the system, um, that that will help women feel a little bit more empowered to do that. Um, but again, more broadly, I think that this, this is a problem that those within the profession need to step up to the plate to fix and, and really can't be fixed by individuals, um, because they are so much, so, so much deeper than that and really about how we do clinical research and how we educate the next generation of, of doctors and, and how we get feedback systems in place so that doctors are learning from their error, errors and all of these really big systemic problems that um, really require the will of, of those who are in charge of these systems. And, and the message for women, though, is, is trust your instincts. Listen to your inner voice because women, uh, I think, are uh, – uh, especially equipped to be attuned to their bodies uh, in mm-hmm. so many more ways than men. Men, in many ways, are unfortunately, I mean, to their detriment, are oblivious to their bodies. Women are more attuned. Uh, that may cause more distress, but pay attention to the distress signals because uh, they may be indicative of uh, a looming problem mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, begin to address the problem before it emerges into uh, a major uh, calamitous disease state. I think that's mm-hmm. an important message to get across to women. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. The book is Doing Harm. Uh, Maya Dusenberry, the author, and she's also uh, your website is uh, feministing.com where mm-hmm. you'll find more information. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It's my pleasure. I appreciate you joining us. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com, drhoffmanstore.com.